Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nichelle De Silva, and I am delighted to be joined by Amy Finstein, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Visual Arts at the College of the Holy Cross, where she teaches modern architectural and urban history. We will be talking about her book, Modern Mobility Aloft, Elevated Highways, Architecture, and Urban Change in Pre-Interstate America, published by Temple University Press in 2020. Welcome, Amy, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Could you begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background, particularly how you came to your research interests around modernization and urban infrastructure projects? Absolutely. Happy to do so. Um, So yes, I am an architectural historian. I have a PhD and MA in architectural history from the University of Virginia. And my undergraduate degree is in American studies and art history from Brandeis University. I've really loved architecture for a long time. I first, I think, really became aware of it and became interested in it when I was about 12 years old. Um, I was very lucky that my parents decided to put an addition onto our house, and they worked with an architect to start thinking through those different options. And the whole idea that we could think about how spaces were used and make specific choices and changes that would impact our daily lives was so fascinating and exhilarating to me. And I was really hooked. And once I was in college, I started studying art and architectural history, and I became very interested in architecture as a tool for understanding societal change. I was someone who previously had really not loved history or social studies, but in my art and architecture courses, I suddenly found myself understanding historical moments much more vividly than I ever had before because of the art and architecture that went along with them. Everything suddenly made a lot more sense to me. And so as a graduate student, when I was learning about iconic buildings and historical trends in architecture, I began to wonder more and more about how local publics, everyday citizens, began to notice major changes in their surroundings and their built environment. In singular buildings, architecture is so often tied to individual clients and sites, and so those impacts are more immediate, easier to trace. But I wondered, kind of how did the larger public interact with shifting visual and architectural norms? And I was really lucky that I found some models for answering these questions in my amazing graduate school mentors. First was Richard Guy Wilson, whose scholarship on the so-called machine age in America really codified a relationship for me between increasing mechanization in the early 20th century and various consumer products, vehicles, and buildings that brought those ideas to the masses. I took some other classes with John Maswika and Del Upton, who explored the concepts of the public sphere and the modern city as these built constructs. And this all really informed the genesis of this project as a dissertation and then eventually as as a book. I really see these ideas um, of thinking about how space and movement and form entered into the public realm of the early 20th century as a way of understanding our landscape today we can start to think about how did it matter and confront everyday citizens in a way that was more impactful than an individual building. 
And so I'm really interested in this as applied to highway developments, as applied to single family residential developments, as these are such backbones of our current built environment. And I also really see them as a tool for confronting our global climate crisis. I think that modern architectural and urban history can be tools for understanding how and why we've arrived where we have. That's really fascinating. And I really resonate with just the way in which, um, for me as well, in in undergrad and in grad school, how you know this sort of vehicle of art and architecture really made history come alive and really changed my own uh, approach to history and my my love of history uh, really blossomed through this you know I think the lens of art and architecture so I really I really um, you know that that part really resonates with me uh, and we'll come back to to some of these these larger issues but. Uh, you know, still on the the subject on of the personal, you talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the book. Uh, but you know, for the listeners of the podcast, I wondered if you could share a little bit about how your own personal experiences with seeing large infrastructural projects unfold in Boston uh, led you to write the book. Absolutely. Well, I'm from Boston originally, and in the late 1990s and early 2000s, I was working at an architecture firm in downtown Boston. And during that time, Boston was enduring unbelievable construction and disruption in its downtown core, thanks to the so-called Big Dig, which is probably famous or infamous to some of your listeners. The Big Dig was the most expensive public works project in American history, And for those unfamiliar with it, it was a project that replaced an aging elevated highway with a new tunneled version of the highway underneath that same literal path through the city, all while keeping the elevated highway operational throughout. When the new underground tunnels opened, the land formerly occupied by the elevated highway was reclaimed for a new network of public parks, and that is today's Rose Kennedy Greenway. So the Big Dig, which took an audacious 16 years to complete, kept Boston's pedestrian and automotive movement kind of in constant tumult during that time. And I remember standing and watching construction one day, and it was a really tremendous spectacle in front of me. One half of the old elevated highway was still intact, and cars were driving on it, but cars were notably going in the opposite direction of what was originally intended for that side of the road, because the other half of the traffic was now flowing in the tunnel underneath. And surrounding this half of a highway were huge cuts in the ground and piles of dirt and fences and barriers and temporary sidewalks and temporary roadways. And of course, just the constant din of construction and trucks. And I remember standing and watching this unbelievable scene and and literally kind of thinking someone thought that this original elevated highway project was a good idea when it was first designed and built. And I wondered who were they and why did they think this? And this really stuck with me. And once I uh, arrived at graduate school, I had the opportunity to start to explore this more from a scholarly perspective. And uh, that was the start of my initial interest in this. That's really fascinating. And I love when when the sort of the personal becomes um, a vehicle for for this kind of professional writing as well. It really kind of animates it. And uh, this is really fascinating. And as your book notes, um, okay, so I've, I've been a grad student in Boston and have taken the subway many times uh, and didn't know until I read, you know, the beginning of your book that the nation's oldest subway is the Boston subway built in 1897. But then when I was 
Yeah, when I was reading your book, though, I was really struck by the fact that in that same year, in 1897, Scientific American called the motor car the most attention-grabbing engineering accomplishment of the year. And so it was really interesting that there are these sort of two competing forms of transport uh, that are sort of vying for the public's attention and um you know, sort of for prominence. And so today I think of the US and many of us know the US as a nation of highways, but you're talking about this moment in which, you know, this is this future that seems so um, normal to us today is so, so prevalent. This was still be, this history was still being formed. And so um, there's this kind of uh, I think, tussle in which modes of individualized transit promised to offer a solution to problems that the mass transit of the time couldn't solve fully. And so I was wondering about, um, you know, the kinds of new urban pressures and aspirations that contributed to the construction of these elevated highways, the kinds of problems that they were trying to solve and the kinds of, you know, futures they were hoping to create. Could you talk a little bit about that? Of course. Well, I think if I had to summarize my three big things that start to answer that question, I would think about speed and the notion of independence and the notion of economic vitality. And I'll kind of unpack those, I guess, a little bit um, individually. I think the first thing to keep in mind is that in the late 19th century, as you uh, suggested with the timeframe of the subway, 19th century cities streets were really busy places. They were spaces that physically hosted lots of different constituencies at the same time. There were pedestrians, horses and carriages. There were omnibuses, which is kind of a horse-drawn streetcar. Then eventually there were streetcars, elevated railways, sometimes freight trains. um, And eventually, of course, automobiles add to that as well. So streets were messy, busy, frenetic places. And an individual moving about a 19th or early 20th century city relied on public transportation, streetcars, trains, or similar. And in taking the train or the streetcar, the passenger agreed to the kind of the singular destination and community ethos of that mode of travel, right? You get on the train, you know where it's going, and you might have to actually walk someplace after you get off. But the automobile upsets this proverbial apple cart a lot, both on the individual level and for city streets. Cars really liberated people from this kind of communal ethos that I mentioned a moment ago, that someone could suddenly have total control over the timing, the route, and the destination of their physical movement. This was also really exciting for business owners who could now rely on truck transportation to ship goods from place to place instead of only railroads and um, boats or ships. So it was refreshing and exciting to have such independence and control, and that becomes a big thing. The next layer, though, becomes uh, about how this starts to impact city streets themselves. That city streets, uh, once automobiles are added to city streets, they bring a lot more chaos. They also bring a lot more opportunity, right? So adding personal automobiles to city streets that were already filled with all of the users I mentioned a moment ago made things really dangerous. Cars are competing for room with the horses and the streetcars and the pedestrians, (laughs) right? And there start to be these really gory accidents between various combinations of these different users, Um, city leaders and engineers try to start to regulate their way out of this at first. They implement rules that we're familiar with today of stop signs or one-way streets, street signals, dedicated parking zones. 
Um, but as they're doing this, automobile usage is expanding and growing even more. And so by the 1920s, automobile usage had expanded so much that business owners in downtown areas became really worried about the accessibility of their businesses to customers. And city leaders worried about the downtown congestion deterring customers and investment in these areas. And so this all starts to set in motion these series of responses, initially from engineers, but then eventually that kind of connect to the genesis of these highway projects. The engineers start kind of measuring and quantifying the chaos on the city streets. They start to measure congestion, they measure accidents, um, and they increasingly advise that the answer to street chaos and safety and congestion is to sort and separate different types of street users kind of into their own planes of movement. This really echoed the precedent of elevated railroads. Um, in that, in this way of sorting and separating, they imagined elevated sidewalks, sidewalks hung from the sides of buildings, dedicated freight roads, and increasingly, um, multi-level streets. Now, this imagery also really built on enthusiasm for speed that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that mm -hmm. during this time, there starts to be such excitement about like fast, technologically empowered movement. And this is coming through not just in engineering spheres, but from novelists, from architects, from planners. Um, you can think about um, novels of the time like Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, publications like Scientific American that you mentioned earlier. All of these are featuring kind of exciting travel via trains and blimps, submarines, automobiles, eventually planes, too. Um, and then architects get in on this as well. We end up with um, well-known architects like Le Corbusier and Hugh Ferris, who start toying with these ideas in paper schemes for utopian cities in these same years. And they start to, start to tout, excuse me, um, imagery of new cities that featured elevated highways flowing above the ground surface between and through skyscrapers. And this is really exciting and inspiring. And so this all comes together for municipal leaders and individual cities who are worried about the congestion from economic and logistical perspectives. They see these engineering and architectural ideas in the pages of municipal affairs and design magazines. And um, these elevated highways start to seem like the antidote to all of this all at once, right? They would sort and separate different types of street users. They would maintain downtown accessibility, and they would really demonstrate their currency with popular architecture and planning ideals, all in the singular forms of these constructed roads. Yeah, I can imagine that this would have seemed, you know, like, you know, the perfect solution, Absolutely. Um, but of course, you know, they, they, they probably had uh, various problems of their own, you know, that, that only came into view um, as they were built and as people started using them. Uh, and what you do is you take three different case studies in Chicago, in New York and in Boston, um, even though, as you say, these kinds of elevated highways proliferated in other places as well. Um, could you talk a little bit about why you picked these three cities? Um, could you tell us a little bit about what makes them a good precedent for studying the other ones? And, you know, what what kinds of similarities, you know, in broad strokes um, occur across these three different cities um, that you, you know, that you talk about in the book? Absolutely. 
Well, so yeah, you mentioned the the three cities, and I'll um, share the the three roads that I concentrated on here to kind of try to define this typology are Wacker Drive in Chicago, which was built from 1924 to 1926, the West Side Elevated Highway in New York, which was built between 1929 and 1937, and as we mentioned before, the Central Artery in Boston, built from 1951 to 1959. When I was thinking about what roads to study and and kind of per your question, what made these three worthy and interesting to study together, I really settled on three major criteria. First, I was really interested in projects that had been added to existing older landscapes, cities that already had dense downtown districts and who used elevated highways to work around their existing challenges. This also meant that I wanted roads that predated the interstate highway period that were locally born and locally implemented, not pushed in from the perspective of federal oversight that happens later on. Second is that I wanted projects that had really distinct architectural vocabularies. Wacker Drive has a classically inspired approach in Chicago. The West Side Highway featured Art Deco sculptural relief. And Boston Central Artery had horizontal stripes folded into its steel guardrails, kind of like a streamlining effect. And I thought it was really fascinating to consider how the idea of, quote unquote, modern transportation took on different visual forms in each location, even as they originated from the same kind of mantra of modernization. Finally, I really wanted projects whose impacts were still visible in the urban landscapes uh, in that their cities had recently grappled with what to do about them or the legacies that they created. In Chicago, they have recently restored and expanded Wacker Drive. Um, In New York, the West Side Highway was removed and replaced with an on-grade version of the West Side Highway uh, in the late 1990s. And in Boston, as I noted earlier, the big dig took down the elevated central artery in favor of the new tunnel with this new park space on top. And the current relevance of each of these three landscapes helps us understand their roots more meaningfully. They help us to understand not just these particular cities, but more broadly, the roots of our kind of auto-dependent landscapes and, uh, and lifestyles. The last thing I'll add here is that one of the connections I noted across these three roads and some of the other places I studied as well is that there were patterns and personalities documented in each of these individual examples who were involved in consulting for and advising many other locations on similar traffic improvement and urban design plans in the same time period. I would repeatedly find the same transportation planning consultant or planner or architect touting their ideas in the pages of professional journals and magazines, but then also working for a whole host of different municipalities across the country. And so we can really see the continuity of these ideas as they spread in some of these individual voices who I was able to track in these three examples in particular. Yeah, this is uh, this is really great to to kind of imagine just how different it would have been a hundred years ago as as these uh, infrastructural projects were being put in place. Uh, and so now I want to kind of dive into some of the specifics of what set each case study apart, because in some ways they were quite different um, and and their differences are also really illuminating. So, for example, it seemed as though 
you know, because the Chicago Highway was the the earliest in some ways, there were a lot of reservations about kind of embarking on this on this project. But at the same time, it seemed as though this was the case that there was the most optimism at the outset about what this highway could do. So could you tell us a little bit more uh, in detail about maybe some of the people, the the prime movers and shakers in this case, or some of the 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 very specific like the specifics of this case in particular and how it played out? Like what made the Wacker Drive highway design unique? Sure. Well, it is um, unique in in my three examples. First and foremost, of course, because it still stands. Mm-hmm. But I actually think that um, it the fact that it still stands and the events that that led to that for I suppose really the last hundred years or so, um, I think really begin if we think about the fact that the design for what becomes Wacker Drive is actually included in the 1909 plan of Chicago, which, um, as you know, I'm sure is a very kind of famous landmark moment in American planning history. Mm-hmm. And uh, many people don't realize that the the origins of Wacker Drive actually are that old, dating back to 1909. Um, so maybe I'll situate uh, just kind of two pieces of this that can help uh, outline some of what makes it distinctive, both visually and in terms of its evolution. Um, the finished product of Wacker Drive, for those who may not be familiar with it, was a double-decked road for most of its length, triple-decked actually for one chunk between Michigan and Wabash Avenues. Um, and it's especially unique because it is integrated into the riverfront in such a way that it doesn't actually appear elevated or constructed from points south of the Chicago River at all. From the riverside and from points north, you look back and you see this crisp concrete framework uh, that is kind of the river, the riverfront itself featuring classical architectural details. There are prominent railings, balustrades, light fixtures all along the upper level. There are rusticated piers and arches on the lower levels. There are riverfront overlooks and walkways. It's not just the road itself. It's kind of this multi-level frame for the edge of the city along the river. But from the city side, from point south of the river, you can simply walk or drive along the top of Wacker Drive without realizing that there are levels beneath you. And this is because the construction of Wacker Drive involved actually raising the entire ground plane south of the river. This made the new multi-level street less kind of visible. And it also provoked really unusual opportunities for new buildings that they hoped would be built along the drive, which they eventually were, that could have subterranean connections directly to the highway and the riverfront. And so this was very enticing from a real estate development perspective, as well as um, a kind of engineering efficiency perspective. A couple of things that also make the Wacker Drive scenario, I think, important to understand is that the genesis of the idea in the 1909 plan comes from this commercial, a a commercial kind of advocacy group in Chicago, literally called the Commercial Club. And uh, they actually commissioned this comprehensive city plan from two very important architects, Daniel Burnham and Edward Bennett. And then they bring it to the city of Chicago saying you really should advance, uh, adopt, excuse me, what we have proposed here. The city does, in fact, adopt the whole thing. And then this plan guides development for the next 15, 20 years, but kind of through individual projects that become kind of ticked off or championed in certain ways. And 
In terms of Wacker Drive, we see a really important precedent set for the idea of modernizing urban fabric and what visions were for modern urban life in this context. This really comes through in thinking about what Wacker Drive replaced. And what it replaced was a street along the water, along the river, called South Water Street, which was the location of Chicago's longtime produce market. This was kind of the epicenter of Chicago's food chain. And the buildings along South Water Street were kind of modest brick warehouse buildings, fairly run down, but fine. Um, And every day the street was very busy with activity. Vendors coming and going from selling their goods, shoppers coming to purchase goods, merchants loading and unloading things from their warehouse spaces. And so the idea that this kind of elite business advocacy group of the commercial club is um, suggesting the removal of this street starts to suggest for us what's being valued in Chicago about business interests. In this case, the business interests of perhaps a more elite clientele who are members of the commercial club, as opposed to the vendors and merchants of the daily food market. And so this starts to introduce for us a pattern that we see actually throughout urban planning history, both before and after the highways in my study, that is about power inequity and about the primacy of kind of elite business interests over those of less swanky circles. It really initiates a pattern of displacement. And so... I think one of the interesting things that we see in Wacker Drive is the duality of that, that Wacker Drive is successfully implemented kind of in its fairly original form because it's incorporated in this comprehensive plan for re-envisioning the city in this modern and progressive way. And at the same time, it sets up for us this pattern that um, is much more problematic in the longer term um, about uh, displacement and differing visions for what modernity means to different constituencies in the city. Yeah, there's yeah, there's the the optimism and the the promise balanced with some of the realities of inequity uh, that you know uh, still endure today. Um, Let's move on to the to the the New York one because I was really delighted by the the fabulous Art Deco designs, uh, and I was curious about you know sort of who who makes these design choices and you know who gets to sort of does you know decide on what the the visual look of the city will be because these elevated highways are quite. Um, they're quite striking. Uh, and it, it seemed to me as though you really enjoyed writing about these design choices in New York as well. Uh, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the New York case and what set that one apart, especially since, you know, it hasn't endured in the same way as Chicago. Absolutely. And I love that you said the, the fabulous Art Deco because it really it really is a moment of Art Deco fabulousness. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, the West Side Highway was um, a, an enormous constructed roadway running above a whole series of surface streets along the west side of Manhattan. Um, and it ranged from uh, 60 feet wide in some places to even wider in other places, depending on entrance and exit ramps. Um, it was about 30 to 40 feet high. It was made of steel and concrete with some granite paving blocks and its original road surface. And so this had a really striking presence in the urban landscape. 
Um, but I think your point is well taken about the distinctive nature of its art deco vocabulary really comes from, uh, really is one of the distinguishing features here. The art deco vocabulary and sculpture that the book talks about was designed by one of the most uh, kind of foremost art deco architectural firms in Manhattan at the time. They are busy uh, designing major art deco skyscrapers elsewhere in the city, and then they get hired effectively to kind of dress up the plans for this elevated highway. And that becomes a little bit of, a, of an interesting scenario here. Um, what had happened was that the original plan for the West Side Elevated Highway evolved from concerns about railroad transportation on the West Side and comes from actually a, an early 20th century proposal that had envisioned building a new elevated freight railroad along the West Side and putting a new elevated highway on top of that. So like a double-decker sandwich, if you will, of mm -hmm. um, you know surface transportation, then elevated rail, and then elevated automobile. That doesn't end up going forward, but this starts to loom large for the borough president of Manhattan, a local leader involved, um, who starts to tout this as uh, his as his solution to transportation along the West Side. The problem is is that. Um, there are local arts and civic groups who start to rally against this scheme. And they say, well, what you're proposing is really very similar to the superstructures of elevated railroads that they've just finished taking down in other parts of the city. And so the city's response is to retain this high profile firm of Sloan and Robertson to effectively dress up the design. I show a lot of illustrations and pictures about this in the book their resulting designs really leaned into the idea of mechanized transportation. They come up with designs for entrance ramps that featured um, wheels kind of with wings on them, suggesting the notion of the speed of movement. They designed railings and light fixtures that mimicked skyscraper kind of profiles. And they designed intricate cast iron sculptural reliefs that featured gears and propellers, um, other kind of technological gadgetry, if you will, that marked each street intersection or announced each adjoining pier area. And so it was a very extensive artistic program that was aimed to really mitigate the physical impact of this huge elevated structure in the middle of city streets and make it legible to those using it, using both, I should say, the elevated highway as well as those moving around it at, uh, at the street level. And so that was one of the really fun things to discover here. I remember actually being in the New York City Municipal Archives and finding the papers that documented the hiring of the architects in question. And it was a really exciting moment. So I'm glad that you got that enthusiasm through the text as well. No, absolutely. And, you know, like the, the illustrations and everything were really helpful for kind of imagining um, a very different New York City. Uh, so I also now want to focus a little bit on the Boston piece because, I mean, there was so much about it that I found interesting. Uh, the fact that it took far longer than the Chicago Highway and the New York Highway to complete, and then was immediately subjected to intense criticism. It seemed as though it had become, you know, obsolete even before it began operations. But you seem to think that the story is a little bit more complicated than how it first appears. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the politics, that just the kind of, you know, what, what was happening that made it take so long to build and what changed in that time? 
that's a great observation. And it does, it, it does distinguish itself from the other two examples here because of its long kind of gestation period, if you will. The central artery in its original form is proposed in 1930, but it is not completed until 1959. And so we have a very long period of kind of thinking and agitating and advocating about this project through fits and starts and through really major changes in terms of um, the political and economic climate of the time, both locally as well as um well, nationally and globally, I suppose. Um, so it endures right throughout the Great Depression and then the ramp up to World War II and then on the other side of it. And I think we have to think about that long duration in partnership with also changing jurisdiction about the project. The central artery, when it is first envisioned, is developed as a city-sponsored idea. It comes from the city planning board and folks who are con concerned about the kind of local street congestion that I mentioned earlier. And they hire a planner who starts to advise them about this, and they start to envision this as a solution for local traffic concerns about how do we get cars and, and different users um, across the city effectively to be able to keep the business interests or the business um, uh, business activities kind of going smoothly, right? Um, but then as time goes on, the project gets interrupted. There's not enough uh, money and there are bigger fish to fry, so to speak. And so the project goes into this holding pattern. But as time goes on, the central artery becomes incorporated into first regional kind of metropolitan Boston planning conversations, then statewide conversations, and then eventually federal conversations about the interstate uh, system that starts being installed in the late 1950s. And so the changing kind of sphere of jurisdiction and of literal audience of who are the cars who and, and um drivers who are going to be using this road changes kind of the, the scope of the solutions that this, this project is supposed to solve. And that becomes increasingly complicated. Um, it also comes into, you know, conflict quite locally that um, once the project, I should say, what starts to set the Boston example finally into motion is in 1948, um, the design becomes incorporated into a state highway plan, and that secures it kind of additional outside sources of funding that make it financially feasible, and that sets it on, it, on its path to actual implementation. But once construction is about to begin in the early 50s, um, residents who are slated to be displaced because of the highway's path through dense existing urban fabric, and I should say that's a really important piece of what's different about Boston, these local residents and business owners become very upset, especially those in the North End, which is the area where construction was starting first. And they start to protest. They protest unsuccessfully, but they um, they label buildings who, that are supposed to be torn down for the building as a way of kind of cultivating greater local awareness about the project. Um, then there are other residents in other parts of the city as construction proceeds towards the south. Um, there are residents and businesses near today's Dewey Square and Chinatown who start to see the displacement and destruction happening in the North End, and they protest the road's path, and in this case, actually more successfully, where the road is redesigned to go into a tunnel near Dewey Square and transition to a surface road in this area instead of being an elevated highway. Um, and so there are these fits and starts that are first about planning and then about local activism that kind of slow things down. 
But the last piece of all of this is that throughout this entire period of the better part of 30 years where this project is being talked about and then eventually implemented, there are changing sizes of automobiles, there are changing numbers of automobiles, and there are changing speeds of automobiles. But the basic road design for the central artery itself remains fairly constant from its original incarnation in 1930. And this really dooms it um, because Mm. once it is saddled with the additional statewide traffic and then um, the central artery actually gets some, um, some small amounts of federal interstate funding in its last years of implementation that connects it through to other interstates in the area, And it makes it shoulder a far greater audience of users than was originally intended. And so one of the things that I recount in the book is that, you know, the day after the central artery opens, it's already far beyond its official capacity. Um, And things simmer down a little bit for a while, but it sets up a kind of perfect storm of discontent of so many different types of um, users in terms of different destinations all trying to use this road that is literally going through the city. And so it doesn't take very long before locals and experts start to realize what a huge problem the central artery actually created. And of course, that creates um, the uh, kind of path to the big dig that eventually then occupies a huge amount of um, time, energy and money in Boston uh, for the last 25 years or so. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's quite a different case from the others. Uh, and and it seems that so it's it's it seems really interesting, or rather it was really interesting reading the book to think about how, on the one hand, many of the early solutions to manage traffic on these highways derived from older systems, so railways, just sort of how traffic was managed uh, in an earlier pre-automobile time. And then on the other hand, as you describe in the book, and then as you've been sort of discussing through the case of the Boston. Um, the Boston Highway, you've been talking about how the kinds of unique problems posed by these elevated highways precipitated new debates about how to go about a revised model for highway construction. Uh, And you've talked a little bit about this already, but I wondered if you could talk more about how it shaped uh, the well, the the eventual interstate highway system, you know, and how those decisions that were made at local city level, you know, at at the level of these quite distinct cities, have maybe you know sort of extrapolated into larger uh, nationwide projects, and and maybe some of the ways in which these decisions have transformed from local to national and have endured into the present. Well, it's interesting. I mean. I think that one of the things that we can learn from these early roads is kind of to emphasize the experiential quality of urban centers as dynamic places that are accommodating Mm -hmm. lots of different types of users. And that a roaring highway overhead or next to you is hugely disruptive. You know, early in some of the conversations about these roads, there's this faith in kind of technological progress that that many talk about as a way to assuage kind of early questions about, well, isn't this going to be loud? Isn't there going to be pollution? And they say, oh, well, we're going to use a paving surface that makes it very, very quiet for the cars. And we're going to shift to electric cars, and there's not going to be any kind of pollution. And there's this kind of faith in technological progress in other ways that is used to dampen concerns about the experiential uh, nature of this. Um, one of the things that I think we see 
as highway development shifts to the interstate model in the middle part of the 20th century, and, and I should say after my, my focus, is kind of the homogenization of the design details and these approaches as a kind of one-size-fits-all solution to local transportation concerns that really were coming from a larger regional, if not national, perspective. And so, for example, if the cases in Boston, New York, and Chicago all come from these very local concerns about traffic snags in this intersection or this location or this economic concern, suddenly the idea of sorting and separating traffic becomes kind of generalized, right? And they say, and many of these federal plans for interstates say, well, we need to connect point A to point B, so we'll put a, a road through it, and we'll sort and separate them in that same way. But it's thinking at such a larger scale that there's much less awareness about what the impact of this is going to be locally. And because mm-hmm. they're not coming from a local um point of origin, if you will, they are not responding to local concerns the way these these projects, uh, the way my projects do. And so that's one of the things that I think is actually so important about understanding this earlier con- uh, uh, contingent of roads is that they really do come from these local concerns. And so they set in place the enthusiasm for elevated movement and for high-speed movement and urban modernization that is so exciting and dynamic in so many different ways. Um, but then when it is kind of standardized with literal you know, federal guidelines for how highways are supposed to enter cities and the widths and the details and what have you, they remove any of the architectural conversation about local place from the uh, from the recipe, if you will. And that really becomes to the detriment of so many cities across the country. And really, I think, is so much of the legacy that currently um, many places across the country are, are trying to grapple with. I think it also starts to provoke questions for all of us in terms of thinking about what do we do in its place? That mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these highways, both the early ones and the interstates, help to create our very auto-dependent culture right now and auto-dominant expectations of movement in each of these different cases or corridors. And so how do we start to combat this? You know, is there a a legacy that we can start to think about today about, well, do I want to be only in a car going from place to place? Can we create urban landscapes that, that are not catering to people just driving through the city, but actually coming to the city and experiencing the city in a different way? You know, what are the environmental impacts of all this? I think it can provoke a lot of questions about or maybe understanding of where we've arrived today and seeing some of the early kernels of that in these early decisions, and then maybe an opportunity for reflection about how we want to move forward in a more intentional way. Yeah, yeah. I really want to sort of push that question a little bit, you know, just, you know, how the process of writing this book changed or shaped how you saw present-day automobile infrastructure infrastructures and if there was something you really wanted to leave listeners with in terms of things to think about things that surprised you or had an you know odd or bizarre afterlife or whether there were some kinds of urgencies that you were seeing through these much earlier infrastructures that you kind of want to uh underscore or highlight for listeners you know as we um you know some of us may be listening to the podcast while driving um <laughs> You know, there, you know these, and this is also something that's become so ubiquitous. We all know 
um, how big of a problem it is. But, you know, there's like so much of the history that we don't really think about at all. And I was wondering if there was something that, you know, kind of became much more urgent or looming for you that you might want to leave with listeners. Sure. Well, I guess one thing that I want to emphasize is, you know, I'm an architectural historian and I came at studying these constructed roadways as kind of architectural objects. I really felt like they began to embody in their original planned forms a way of thinking about urban landscapes in a kind of more connected way than singular buildings, right? Mm -hmm. And so to me, that is a kind of broader framework than I think sometimes today we are thinking about cities, or maybe we, the average citizen, who's maybe not not involved in this on a day-to-day basis. And I think there's an interesting precedent there in beginning to think about how it is that individual buildings connect to larger neighborhoods, which connect to larger spheres of movement, which connect to the human experience, and of course, connect to the environment and climate and and things like this Mm -hmm. as well. Um, A couple other things that I guess I would I would mention, you know, right now there's lots of current debate about infrastructure right now and thinking about the challenges of infrastructure that we need to update, if you will. And I think it's helpful to think about infrastructure as a baseline armature for human connectivity. Really, that's what infrastructure is. And so part of the lesson for me in studying these projects is thinking about the longer term implications of road projects in this way, that building bigger roads or fancier roads in this way did not solve the traffic concerns. In fact, they invited more cars to drive. They created bigger traffic concerns as a result. So I think this should give us pause as we plan things now. Do we want to spend more time in our cars or do we want to think about our daily experiences moving in or around cities in more nuanced ways? And if the latter, then we all need to think more creatively about what infrastructure we build and what modes of movement we choose. Your question also got at the notion of kind of ironies or um, lingering things. And I think one of the things in the Boston case that is kind of interesting to note is that um, some of the local transportation frustration in Boston started because of a lack of connection between the city's two major railroad stations, North Station and South Station. And except for a short-lived freight railroad that was built in the late 19th century, that connectivity has never successfully been addressed in Boston for human and pedestrian traffic for over a hundred years. And so, you know, I do wonder about um, what, what we have learned or how we can encourage ourselves perhaps to notice the patterns or issues in history that haven't been resolved. And if we can start to respond to those um, differently it's striking to me that that we still don't have that um, that rail connection in Boston, and uh, yet we've built a road through it twice over, um, but that we still can't <laughs> we still can't get there um, on foot or via rail in a, in a more efficient way, and that seems um, well funny, ironic, <laughs> all of the above. Yeah, uh, it would be great to have some of those enduring problems addressed. And I think your book does a really incredible job at kind of pointing to, um, you know, the the 
the history of certain optimisms that, you know, then bring about effects and changes that were unimagined and now that we sort of have to contend with and still have to grapple with um, in terms of connection, in terms of uh, transportation, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the discrepancy between ambition and real lived inequities. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is, I, I, I'm sort of trying to keep note of the time. I realize that I've taken up quite a bit of your, um, of your morning, uh, so I just want to sort of close out with a question which might seem a little unfair because, you know, this book came out just at the end of last year. But I was curious about what what might be next for you and whether that's sort of a different project or whether there are like threads of this book that, you know, didn't really make it into the final work that you're kind of interested or enthusiastic or excited about uh, developing further. But in general, I was curious about, you know, where your where your move, where your thoughts are going now. Sure. Well, um, I'd say um, yes to both your questions, if you will. Yes, and, <laughs> um, you know, uh, one of the things I'm working on right now, and, and um, I just finished working this semester with my students on some research related to using archival sources, um, archival digital sources, I should say, that have uh, become available thanks to recent digitization efforts um, to map stories about displacement and urban modernization along the paths of these highways. And it's been really exciting to be able to work with them in digital repositories, and I should say in our remote landscape of teaching on Zoom during a pandemic, mm. it was a really exciting way to have them do their own new research that brought to bear aspects of urban history and urban uh, kind of individual personalities and local prospects that brought these stories down to a very personal level for the students. So that's been a really exciting new recent thing, and I'm hoping that that can continue in some exciting directions. Um, as well. Um, in terms of uh, another project, I'm working on uh, something in somewhat of a different realm um, about mid-century housing in America. And just as with the highway research, I'm really interested in how modern ideas about design reached and were consumed by average citizens. And so I'm working on kind of two different components of this. One, um, I've been researching a little known house designed by Walter Gropius and Marcel Breuer that was commissioned by someone outside the avant-garde architectural and academic circles of many of their other commissions uh, from the timeframe of their brief partnership. And so that's been really fun to research. And I'm also exploring some ideas about mid-century prefabricated housing and thinking about how such systems brought high-style design ideas to the larger public, um, a kind of you know, middle ground between massive developments of tract homes and the high-style commissions of signature architects. So I'm really excited to see where these projects go. So am I. Uh, I find prefab housing so fascinating for, again, the sort of the ideals versus sometimes the the actual lived reality. Um, right. Some of these, are, you know, I mean, some of these are so interesting, too, like in terms of design. Um, uh, you know, it's it's quite fascinating to to read about. And I'm looking forward to to your work. Uh, I also really love the idea of the mapping project with students. And I love the ways in which, you know, our own personal uh, fascinations and, you know, that sort of make their way into the smaller project of the book, then become these more expansive uh, collaborative projects for thinking through larger issues that um, may not be in the book necessarily, but that you have the, the room to kind of explore and think through in a more expansive way. Uh, so thank yes. you so much for taking the time to talk with me uh, about your new book. 
And I just wanted to say this has been a really fascinating discussion and I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. This discussion of modern mobility aloft, elevated highways, architecture, and urban change in pre-interstate America by Amy Finstein, published by Temple University Press in 2020, is brought to you by the New Books and Architecture channel of the New Books Network. Thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.